Good morning. My name is Tyler Leland, and I'm the elementary minister here at Bachelor Creek. And I'm excited to be here with all of you in the room today, and also those that are watching online, as we finish up talking about Paul's letter to the Colossians. So if you have your Bibles with you today, if you could turn to chapter 4 of Colossians, the last chapter of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians starting in verse 2. We're going to get there in a minute. But as we start, I want to share a story. In 2005, Bob Iger replaced Michael Eisner as the CEO for the Walt Disney Company. Now at that time, Disney was doing a lot of things right. But there was one glaring problem that faced the future of the company. Disney Animation had been, been creating movies that had been bombing in the box office. And that was uncharted territory for Disney. If you think about Disney, they're known for their animation. Going back to when they first were founded, when movies like Snow White and Peter Pan and The Jungle Book first debuted. Movies that we still show our kids to this day. And then in the 80s and the 90s, they had this second surge of great kids' movies that included movies like The Little Mermaid and The Lion King and Aladdin. But from about 1995 onward, things started to change for Disney. You weren't finding movies that were so memorable anymore. Movies like Treasure Planet, Brother Bear, and Home on the Range. Disney, who had been founded on creativity and innovative storytelling and great animation, were no longer providing that same experience for families. So Bob Iger, on her, his first day ever in a board meeting, walked in and pitched a crazy idea. He told his board, I think we need to buy Pixar. Now, that may seem like a crazy idea, but Bob Iger realized that for Disney, as animation goes, so does the company. So he went to the Pixar campus. He really realized that Disney animation needed what Pixar had to offer as they were cultivating this beautiful culture for their animators and storytellers. And he worked out a deal with Steve Jobs to buy Pixar for $7.4 billion. That might seem crazy, right? Well, maybe. But for, but for Bob Iger, he knew what was the most important thing to his company. And he would do anything that it took to keep it on track. And in the years following the death and resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul knew something similar about the early church. Paul wrote letters to the church, and he noticed when they were getting off track of their mission. So what was the early church's mission? What is our mission today? Well, it's to deliver the gospel, the good news about Jesus to the world. For Paul, this was everything. It all changed for him when he was on the road to Damascus. And instead of striking him down dead for persecuting Christians, Jesus extended a gift of grace. Paul recognized that that grace was found in the gospel story. And he knew that the church was the delivery vehicle that God had chosen to bring the good news to the world. So if a church became distracted from the mission, Paul lovingly redirected them back to the task at hand because people responding to the gospel message ultimately brings glory to God. The God who initiated a plan to extend this grace to Paul and to you and to me. So like Bob Iger knew 
that as Disney, that as animation goes, so does Disney. Paul knew as the gospel goes, so does the church. As the gospel goes, so does the church. If you've been here with us for the rest of the series, you know by now what was distracting the church of Colossae that this letter was written to. False teachings were diluting the grace found in the gospel, and Paul addressed those teachings, drawing the church back to truths that the early believers already knew to be true. But as Paul ends his letter to the Colossians, he takes a more practical approach. It's almost like Paul is refocusing on the things that really matter. It's like he's saying, if I could boil all of this down to a few thoughts, a few statements to give you before I leave, here's what I want you to know. And what I think you'll see today is the thread running through his practical words to the church is this reality that God deserves all the glory. So let's take a look at Paul's final words to the Colossians. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? We're going to start in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most out of every opportunity. Let your conversations be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we see that Paul ends his letter to the Colossians with a few imperatives. And these imperatives can be divided into two categories that both bring glory to God. Prayer and people. What brings glory to God? Well, first of all, prayer brings glory to God. That's where Paul begins. He says, devote yourselves to prayer. And we live in a world that isn't really devoted to much of anything. Like we start New Year's resolutions in January, but by this time of the year, we're kind of setting those aside and and we're ready to pick up on those the next time the New Year's rolls around. And we jump from one cultural fad to the next cultural fad, back to the others. I've seen this in children's ministry. Right now the fad is those poppets, have, have you guys seen those? Your kids probably love those right now. Before that, it was fidget spinners. Before that, it was silly bands. There's always something different that we're moving from one thing to the next. And the thing that is crazy to me that even our culture, which should value marriage almost more than anything else, right, should be devoted to the marriage relationship. One out of every two marriages falls apart. We're a culture that's not devoted. But when I think of devotion, there's some people that come to my mind. And that's my three boys. I have an eight-year-old, a six-year-old, and a four-year-old. And they are the most devoted people I know. But I wish I could tell you that they were devoted to things that really matter. Maybe you will think this matters. It depends on, on who you are, I guess. But they are devoted to Indiana Hoosiers basketball. Hardcore. And I, I'd say that I'll take a little bit of the blame for that. I'm an Indiana Hoosier fan. Yesterday was a hard day in our household as Iowa hit that last second shot. There's some tears for sure. Not for me, it was from the boys, I promise. Um, 
But man, they are so devoted. They'll sit there and they'll watch every single second of a basketball game. And they make sure that their uh, IU gear is ready to go when it's game day. And they have calendars in their rooms where they'll mark off the days until the next IU basketball game. Our middle son, Miles, he's probably over the top the biggest fan. And one thing that he'll do is he talks so much smack to Purdue fans. Like, it's, it's not a good thing. Um, he's going to get beat up someday if he continues it, but that's where he's at. And even to the point where, like, if somebody's wearing Purdue gear in Walmart, as he's walking by, he starts to boo them. Like, that's just what Miles is going to do. And they've, and they've converted some kids in their, in their school classes to be Indiana Hoosier fans as well. But that's how devoted they are. And, and I got to say, that's the type of devotion that Paul wants us to have. That's the type of devotion that Paul had to prayer. If you look at his life, he was devoted to prayer like that. Prayer is a big deal to Paul because it's a big deal to God. And you might be asking, why? Why is it such a big deal? Well, because prayer brings glory to God. And Paul devoted himself to that type of prayer. He was constantly praying for others and constantly encouraging others to join him in prayer. If you look at any one of his letters, that's a key theme that you're going to find throughout his letters to the churches. Not only am I going to pray for you, but I want your prayers as well. Church, what if we were that devoted to prayer? What if prayer wasn't an afterthought, but instead it was where we always began? What if we intentionally scheduled time to be with God each day, even if it meant sacrificing other things in our lives to make it a priority? What if we prayed, asking God for things that were bubbling out of our heart instead of marking things off a checklist or simply going through the motions? I think our lives and our churches would look a lot different. As, as a church, we want to bring glory to God, and prayer is the place that we get to do that. Here's, here's how John Pop, Piper says it. He says, when we pray, the giver is the one who gets the glory. Isn't that so true, though? When we're going to God with our prayers, and God responds and answers our prayers, he is the one that receives the glory. The giver is the one who gets the glory. Prayer matters so much to Paul that he asked the church of Colossae to pray for him. Look at the next two verses. It says, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. He's asking the Colossians to pray for him, as he seeks to fulfill the same mission that he's asked them to fulfill. To proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Or in other words, this good news about Jesus. Paul realized that prayer was a game changer because we have a God who answers prayer. They're not just empty words. We have a God who responds. In Luke chapter 11, we see Jesus tell a parable that shows us this reality. Here's what Luke 11:5 says. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose you have a friend. And you go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though 
he will not get up and give you bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. God does not get annoyed when we knock on the door. He enjoys it. He wants us to do it. And he promises us that when we ask, he will respond. So knock away because he wants to hear from you. I'm going to get practical for a few minutes here because I think that there's times where we just don't know what it looks like to be devoted in prayer. What does it mean to live a life devoted in prayer? What does it mean to bring glory to God through our prayer lives? So I have some practical things that I, I hope will help you as you get started. The first one is this. Start small, but don't stay there. Start small, but don't stay there. This is, this is huge, because I know there's some of us that maybe just don't know what it looks like to pray to God. And all we have to do is simply go to him and talk to him about the things that are on our heart. But then don't just stop there. Take the next step, whatever it looks like for you. Maybe that's listening more and talking less. Or maybe that's finding an un un uninterrupted time with God. Whatever it is for you, take that next step. Another, another idea would be to commit to a consistent time of prayer each day. I think many of us probably pray to God spontaneously throughout the day, which is great. The Bible tells us to pray continually. But when we do that, we're not giving time like in devotion to God. We're not setting apart time where we can be with God. And, and I'll tell you what, when you finally take a time every single day and you set it aside and say, this is my time with God, your life will change. Everything is gonna be fueled out of that time that you have with God. Next, talk with God about the things that are on your heart. Talk with God about the things that are on your heart. That's what it looks like to pray. And here's some questions that you can ask that may be things that are on your heart. Who or what do you care about? Who or what do you care about? That's a heart thing. And that's something that you can give to God. What do you struggle with? What are the things that you struggle with that you can give to God? The sins that you are consistently dealing with. He wants to hear from you. Who or what are you thankful for? Who or what are you thankful for? Those things that you're thankful for in your heart, God wants to hear from and to know that, you're, that you can go to him and praise him for those things. What fears keep you up at night? God wants you to trust him with those things. And finally, what hopes do you have that you'd love to see become a reality? God doesn't just want to hear about our fears or about the things that are going wrong. He also wants to hear about the things that we look forward to, our hopes and dreams. He wants to know that we can trust him with those as well. And then finally, connect your prayer life to your Bible reading. So too many times we separate those two things. And I think that we see Bible reading as something that's productive, where prayer, we don't always see the results. And so it's easier, easier for us to sit down and read Scripture, but when it comes to praying to God, we kind of neglect that sometimes. But to be people who are watchful and thankful and who are always on, in prayer, we can tie these things together. So try 
praying the scriptures in some simple ways. One way that we've been trying to do this with our boys recently is by something called breath prayers. And breath prayers are a way that you can pray the scriptures. So what you would do is you take a scripture that you've been reading, and when you inhale, you say part of that scripture, and then when you exhale, you say the rest of the scripture. So for instance, if you're looking at Psalm 136, which says, O Lord, you are good, your love endures forever. When you inhale, you would say, O Lord, you are good, and then you'd exhale out, your love endures forever. And you do that over and over again, letting yourself sit in the word of God and focusing on who he is and what he's done for you. I hope those things help in your prayer walk with God. I hope they help you take that next step to be devoted to prayer like Paul was. But Paul doesn't stop with prayer. As time's winding down in his letter, he has one last thing to say, and it's no surprise to me that he ends this letter refocusing on the mission. He says, church, you hold the gospel message in your hands. Go share that gift with the people that God's placed in your life. So what else brings glory to God? People bring glory to God. People bring glory to God. Look what he says in verse five. He says, be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Paul shifts his focus to those who don't know Jesus yet. And he gives us some advice on how to share the gospel with those people that God's placed in our lives. First, Paul says to make the most out of every opportunity. And this word opportunity here is a Greek word that would have meant time, time. But not time in the sense of like the overstretching time of, of everything, but instead in, in a moment to be seized. This was actually a phrase that would have been used in marketplaces, which would have meant to buy something up completely. So Paul is saying that when moments come to share the gospel, buy up those moments. Buy the moment. That the, that's what this is talking about here. Buy the moment. If you have the opportunity to share faith with someone, make the most of that opportunity. When it comes to grocery shopping, I think that there's two types of shoppers. First of all, there are good deal buyers, and then there are good deal care lessers. So let me, let me explain this for a minute. If you are a good deal buyer, you cannot pass up a good deal no matter what. So if there are 48 boxes of cereal on sale for a fraction of the price, you are buying that deal. It doesn't matter if you have no space in your house for all that cereal. Or if there is a deal on toilet paper, even though you have plenty of toilet paper stocked up at home, you can't pass it up. I, I'm going to buy that toilet paper. It'll last. I can use it some other time. My wife falls into this camp. And I would say that she gets it honestly because her dad, Jeff, he, he'll still text her on the weekends about deals at Kroger. And she'll run to Kroger to make sure she locks up the deal of the week, whatever it may be. But then there's the other camp, the good deal care lessers. Now, that's the camp that I fall in. And don't get me wrong, I like a good deal. But I just think that there's other factors involved besides the price. For instance, the quality of the product should matter when you're buying something, right? And the other thing is how fast you can actually eat or use the item that is on sale. So I have to know today who's on my side and who's on Adrian's. So how many of you are good deal buyers? We got some good deal buyers in here? Okay, okay. Jeff's back there. Yes, I know that's the fact. 
How many of you are a good deal care lessers? Wow, I, I thought it would be the other way around. I thought we'd have good deal buyers in here, but we have a lot of good deal care lessers too. Well, I bring this up because when it comes to sharing the gospel, we cannot be good deal care lessers. We have to be good deal buyers. We have to buy up the moment that comes our way. Buy the moment. When a conversation at work shifts to something church-related, for good or for bad, buy that moment. When you find yourself on a road trip with an unexpected friend who doesn't know Jesus, buy the moment. When a family member texts you in the middle of a difficult situation, buy. When an adult child comes home from college and asks you why you believe in God, buy. Buy the moment. Seize every opportunity. As people who understand the mission at hand, it's our job to say yes to every single opportunity that comes our way. Jesus was so good at buying the moment. Every opportunity that came his way to share the gospel, to share what he was doing in the world, to share how God's kingdom was being ushered in, he took those opportunities. The one that automatically comes to my mind is when he runs into the Samaritan woman at the well. You might remember this story. Jesus asked her for a drink, and in that moment, the conversation turned to him talking about how he was the living water. He bought the moment. And because he bought the moment, he made an eternal impact on that woman's life. Watch this moment open up in John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. You can see it unfold and how in an instant Jesus made the most of this opportunity. Here's what it says. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus asked her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Did you catch it? Could you see the moment in this story when Jesus said, all right, it's time for me to buy the moment. It was when the Samaritan asked him, Jesus, how in the world can you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? What are you talking about? And then Jesus enters the conversation. He buys the moment. He says, listen here, I got a story to tell you. That's what Paul is talking about at the end of Colossians. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just tell us to buy the moment and lets us go, hoping that we'll be able to, to bring it in. Instead, he tells us what to do next. Here's what verse six says. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So when you buy these moments, Paul says to be full of grace and seasoned with salt. So what does it mean to be full of grace and seasoned with salt? Well, when you're full of grace, you are a people who are overflowing with grace that has been given to you. And in, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out his 12 disciples to the lost sheep of Israel. And when he does that, he tells them to proclaim the gospel, to heal the sick, and to raise the dead. But he also tells them this, freely you have received, freely give. So to be full of grace means that freely you have received, so freely give. That's what it looks like to be full of grace. Freely you have received God's grace, 
now freely give that gift to others. You're filled up with the grace of God daily. And our goal as Jesus followers is to let that grace overflow freely to every single person that we encounter. It's being gracious to people because God's been so gracious to us. I feel like this needs to be said. You don't have to change a person's lifestyle. That is not our job. Our job is to offer the gift of grace to others. You are a seed planter. God is the fruit bearer. And guess who receives the glory when a life is changed forever? The fruit bearer receives the glory. God receives the glory. That's what it looks like to be full of grace. We're people who are gracious to others, extending the gift that's already been given to us, to every single person we encounter. And then be seasoned with salt. Here's my translation for that. Don't be blah. Don't be a blah Christian. There's too many blah Christians in our world. Christians that simply go through the motions, and that's it. They come to church on Sunday and leave here unchanged. Why would anybody want to have a relationship with Jesus when every single person that has a relationship with Jesus looks no different from every other person they know? Why would anybody want to have a relationship with Jesus when the only people that they encounter that know Jesus are blah Christians? To be seasoned with salt means to be flavorful and to make people thirsty for Jesus. That's what it looks like to be seasoned with salt. It's making countercultural decision, decisions with your life. It's choosing to be different with your finances. It's when people start asking questions like, wait, what do you mean you give 10% of everything you make to the church? That doesn't make sense to me. It's choosing to be different in your marriage. Wait, everyone else complains about their spouse from time to time, but I never ever hear you complain about your spouse. It's choosing to be different about how you care for others. So you're telling me that you picked up a hitchhiker with your family in the vehicle and took him out to dinner? That's a crazy story. It's choosing to be dif different with your time. I don't understand why if you only have two weeks of spring break, you're taking one of them to go on a mission trip to serve others. What are you talking about? But those are flavorful de decisions. Those are countercultural actions that make people thirsty for what you have. And then when it's time to give an answer about your faith, be ready to give an answer. I know that this can be the part that seems the most daunting to us because we feel like we don't know enough of the Bible to answer. But all you have to do is know who God is and what he's done for you and share that. That's what it looks like to answer when somebody asks you questions. Be real, be authentic, be gracious. Be flavorful, and then let God do the rest. That's his job anyways. To God be the glory. So what brings glory to God? Prayer brings glory to God, and people bring glory to God. And as the letter of, to the Colossian closes, Paul makes it clear that he wants nothing else than for the Colossians 
and for all of us to be people who bring glory to God. That's the challenge before us, church. That's our mission that's set before us. It's been handed to us just like it's been handed to the early church. The supreme life, the one that we've been talking about over the course of this series, it's been laid out for us. The supreme life is the life with Christ at the center. The one where the gospel story brings glory to God. The good news about Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh man, you are so good to us. And there's days that we forget how good you really are. We forget the story that you're telling. I love how Paul ends this letter to the Colossians because he refocuses on what really matters. He realized that as the gospel goes, so does the church. And he did everything that he could to make sure that he let the church get back on track. God, I pray that we are a church that is on mission, that is on track, that knows what it looks like to bring glory to you. I pray that we are a people that are devoted to prayer. I pray that we are a people that reach others who do not yet know you because of your grace to us. God, Paul was a changed man. And with that meant that he wanted to share the gospel with everyone around him. God, help us to be that same type of person that's flavorful, that's full of grace, and that overflows with the grace that's been given to us. In Jesus' name I pray.